0: You are listening to a programme from BBC Radio 4.
1: I would prefer to betray my country rather than betray my friend. Yeah, I would choose to betray my country.
2: Country. It would have to be country that I betray. You can always move countries. Not least because I have dual nationality. I have two countries. Britain gave me tuition fees and grant to study in university. It's very rare that you'll get another friend. There is no way I can betray Britain that has become my country. Friends are more valuable.
1: 500 years of friendship. Episode 10, A Battalion of Pals.
0: Only connect. That was the motto E.M. Forster used as the epigraph for his novel Howard's End. Published in 1910, the book dramatised the perils of imperialism and warned that England and Germany would soon go to war. The creed of the book's central characters, the Schlegel sisters, was that personal relations are the important thing forever and ever. And that was Forster's creed too. In an essay entitled What I Believe, he would later write, If I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the guts to betray my country. Only connect. It became a kind of religion for Forster and his unconventional circle of friends at the beginning of the century, many of whom belonged to the Bloomsbury Group of artists and writers, including Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes and Lytton Strachey. Dr Matt Cook of Birkbeck, University of London.
1: What's really interesting, I think, about the Bloomsbury set in a period of empire and the Great War, when the focus was on nationalism and jingoism, is they were kind of looking the other way. You know, the idea of art, of beauty, of knowledge, of love. These were the things that they were putting first. And I think we might say now, well, that's great, but in the context of a nation in the build-up to war, this seemed like a direct challenge. So the idea of friendship almost challenging a kind of national ethos.
0: And Ian Forster famously said that he'd rather betray his country than betray his friends, given the choice, and I suppose that was a very stark way of reinforcing that contrast.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think, you know, it's worth seeing Forster in context. So firstly, he was very much coming from that Bloomsbury politics. But it's also worth thinking about him in the context of his desires. So the idea of friend to Forster might mean much more. When he talks about a friend, he might also be thinking about a lover or a life partner. And in those terms, maybe it means something slightly different. You know, if you said, uh, I hope I'd betray my country instead of my wife or my husband, maybe that would be something we'd see as more acceptable. So I think, again, we're encountering the kind of expansive meanings of friendship for some people as opposed to others.
0: After Britain declared war on Germany in August 1914, none of the core members of the Bloomsbury Group signed up for active service. Almost all of them opposed the war. E.M. Forster worked as a Red Cross volunteer in Egypt, tracing missing soldiers. Meanwhile, the ideal of friendship was also being used by the government to recruit desperately needed extra troops. Friendship had been gaining ground on all fronts, as an emotional, political and ethical ideal, but this was the first time it had been pressed into service in quite this way, as a recruiting sergeant. It was to prove hugely successful. At the start of the war, Lord Kitchener and Lord Derby discussed a scheme for the local recruitment of volunteer soldiers. The idea was that men would be more inclined to sign up if they knew that they'd fight alongside friends and work colleagues. This kind of recruitment started in Liverpool, and Lord Derby wrote of the envisaged unit, This should be a battalion of pals, a battalion in which friends from the same office will fight shoulder to shoulder. Within the first month, 50 of these pals battalions were formed, and many more would follow, from the Accrington pals and the Oldham comrades to the Hull tradesmen and the Glasgow tramways battalion. Many of these recruits came from clerical rather than manual jobs, the Hull Daily Mail referred to them as a black-coated battalion, noting, Just as the docker will feel more at home amongst his everyday mates, so the wielders of the pen and the drawing pencil will be better as friends together. In Grimsby, an effort to recruit a pals battalion was started by the former headmaster and pupils of Wintringham Secondary School. 200 Wintringham old boys signed up, and they were soon joined by what one press report called the cream of Grimsby's young manhood. By November, the unit, which became known as the Grimsby Chums, was just over a 1,000 strong, and after a brief period of training, they were dispatched to the front. Dr Shantanu Das of King's College London has researched the strong emotional connections formed between soldiers during the First World War.
2: I think the trench experience was one of those turning moments in the very history of male friendship, The trench experience was perhaps one of the most sustained shattering of the human body. On one hand, you have the ooze of primordial matter, the slimescape. On the other hand, you have the ravages of industrial machinery. And your lifeline is your friend. And I think a whole new world of comradeship, friendship, intimacy. This whole new world was opening up in which Pity, fear, vulnerability, excitement and I would also say a certain diffuse eroticism were fused and confused. And the tactile codes of civilian society, they completely collapsed. For example, I'm thinking of a letter by C.H. Cox and he remembers how his comrade laid in my arms and his last words were for his mother as he died in my arms. And these soldiers, they are often haunted by the feel of their soldiers' bodies against their arms.
0: The big moment for the Grimsby Chums came on the 1st of July, 1916, at the start of the Battle of the Somme. At six in the morning, preparing to advance on a heavily shelled German position, a dozen of the chums broke into song, led by Private Harry Bomber and his friend Sam Ward. They were singing a recent popular ragtime number called When You Wore a Tulip.
2: When you wore
1: a tulip, a sweet yellow tulip, and I wore a big red rose. When you caressed me, twas then heaven, bless me, what a blessing, no one knows.
0: After the singing had died down and the whistle been blown, 24-year-old Lieutenant Leslie Cummins shouted to his men, Over the top and good luck to you all.
1: Your lips were sweeter than When you wore that julep, And I wore a big red robe
0: But the shelling had not destroyed the German positions as planned, and many of the Grimsby chums were killed by machine gun fire. In those early moments of the attack, Lieutenant Cummins himself paused to drag a wounded soldier to cover. As he stood up, he was shot dead. Among the many Grimsby chums who were killed that day were two signallers, as they tried to unwind their wires across no-man's land to maintain telephone contact. Only connect. Eighteen-year-old Charles Strange, son of the head cashier of the local Barclays Bank in Grimsby, suffered a shattered thigh bone. He lay wounded all day until, by cover of night, he and a blinded comrade struggled back together to their own lines using the legs of one and the eyes of the other to make their way. When the chums were finally withdrawn from the battle, their casualties numbered over 500, more than half the battalion, killed, missing or wounded. Of the dozen who had serenaded their pals with When You Wore a Tulip, only two lived to recall that moment. But that was not quite the end of the chums' story. The next year they fought at Arras, again suffering casualties. And 84 years after that, an extraordinary discovery was made.
2: In 2001, this French archaeological team discovered this mass grave of 20 soldiers buried arm in arm. And this is the Grimsby Pals. And the leader of the French archaeological team noted... Can you imagine the friendship and dedication of those who went about laying down the remains in this way? What a remarkable act. So first, you have these bodies arm in arm. But what is perhaps even more touching are these invisible fingers of the friends who had arranged the arms together on the shelf perhaps. And that is quite extraordinary, even within the parameters of First World War friendship.
0: 20 chums buried arm in arm. What better symbol could one want of the power of friendship in times of war to bind men from different backgrounds together? Except, actually what was found, as a photograph of the grave makes clear, was 19 chums buried arm in arm and one other figure, presumably their officer, slightly disconnected from the group with his arms by his side. Separated by rank even in death. Brothers at arm's length. Some suggested that what men experienced when they fought together on the Western Front was not best described as friendship. The Australian-born poet and novelist Frederick Manning saw action on the Somme and later wrote an autobiographical novel about the war called The Middle Parts of Fortune. At one point, the main character reflects on the bonds of war. No, he said finally. I don't suppose I have anyone whom I can call a friend. I like the men, on the whole, and I think they like me. I have one or two particular chums, of course, and in some ways, you know, good comradeship takes the place of friendship. Friendship implies rather more stable conditions, don't you think? You have time to choose. Here you can't choose, or only to a very limited extent. The war created an extraordinary but temporary kind of reality. Strangers, as well as friends and colleagues, risked their lives for each other. But... As Frederick Manning suggested, this could be a spontaneous, instinctive response, rather than an act of love. And after the war, some struggled to maintain these extraordinary bonds in the form of more ordinary friendships, especially when they came from very different backgrounds. And although many soldiers from other parts of the empire served alongside the British recruits, wartime comradeship also struggled to overcome obstacles of race and nationality. And that was one of the themes of E.M. Forster's 1924 novel, A Passage to
2: India. This is one of the finest explorations of both the possibilities and the limits of colonial friendships. But I think we should remember there are three things going on. First, it is also an extended love letter to Syed Masood, with whom Forster was in love. Second, he starts writing the novel before the First World War. And there was this sense that if India served in the First World War, it would be another step towards independence. And what we have instead in 1919, we have the Amritsar massacre. And it is after that, that Foster goes back to the novel and finishes it. And that's why suddenly the mood completely darkens. And this is the context in which we can read that famous final meeting between Captain Fielding and Muhammad Aziz, but can they form a friendship? And this is what Foster is exploring. If it's 50 or 500 years, we shall get rid of you. Yes, we shall drive every blasted Englishman into the sea and then. He rode against him furiously and then he concluded half kissing him. You and I shall be friends. Why can't we be friends now? said the other, holding him affectionately. It's what I want. It's what you want. But the horses didn't want it. They swerved apart. The earth didn't want it, sending up rocks through which riders must pass single file. The temples, the tank, the jail, the palace, the birds, the carrion, the great house, they didn't want it. They said in their hundred voices, no, not yet. And the sky said, no, not there.
0: E.M. Forster's writings made it clear that there remained countless barriers to the creation of the kind of world that he dreamed of, a world in which simple human friendship could connect people, no matter what the differences between them. You can download many more BBC Radio 4 programmes for free. Find these at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.